everybody. Welcome to the Road by Road Garden Show. We've got a special guest with us here tonight. We kicked Greg out of the way, and uh, <laughs> I got my good buddy Fernando Jackson in here, also known as Farmer Fredo. That's right. That's we just right. Just call him Fredo around here, and. Um, He's going to be talking to us later about community gardens and school gardens and urban gardens and all that good stuff, how to set those up, kind of what, uh, what he does. Yeah. So uh, we've had a lot of people asking about us talking about that on the show, and I uh, figured I'd bring in the expert <laughs> on that. Fredo has been a friend of ours for a while. We've known him for a while. I used to run into him on the trade show circuit yep. here and there uh, when we used to do some of those. And um, he's a pretty good gardener. I have to give it to him. <laughs> But uh, before we get into the school garden stuff, let's talk about what we got going on. What do you got going on, Fredo? What are you growing right uh, now? So right now, you know, we we are thank the Lord that we got off some warm days that have come up recently because it's, sure. it's been unique down here, rain and cold. So we are getting our, our plots and stuff ready with uh, potatoes in the ground. Uh, we just did our last planting of our collards, cabbage, broccoli, um, and kale. And um, so we're preparing the ground, getting ready for springtime, which I think is a busy time because uh, everybody loves those tomatoes and squash. <laughs> and so I, I could go on and on, but uh, but but we've really been blessed that um, through like the winter months that we've had like um, collard greens in a lot of our community garden sites, and uh, we've been able to harvest it to give the people like in need in our community. So that's been really like a blessing for us to to, to convert a lot of green spaces into food spaces, and knowing that. Off an eighth of an acre, we've been able to feed like 35 to 50 families like every week off of these spots. So. Can't eat grass, can you? No, no. Well, you, oh, could, well, eat you could eat grass, and but. Collard greens a lot better than grass. A whole lot better. A whole lot better, especially with um, a little bit of neck bone or turkey meat in it and some chicken mm -hmm. broth. I had something, I have a video coming out earlier this week about this. I had something happen this year that I don't believe I've ever had happen in my history of growing collard greens or kale. Um, you remember, was it last Sunday it got on about 81, 82 degrees? Yep. My collard greens got confused. Oh, yeah. <laughs> they got confused. And that, I went earlier this week, they was bolting yeah. already. And yeah. usually I can grow them on up to May. No, no. I had a couple people Facebook message me after I saw mine do this, and they said, my collars is bolting. What's going on? And I said, they got confused. The same thing happened to us. So what I did was when I saw them bolting, I said, well, it's time for me to go harvest these leaves. Mm -hmm. So I went and got some people in the neighborhood, and we went we went old school, just <laughs> breaking it down. So, But then I heard that you could also, like, just crop the leaves off the tip that's coming up. You can crop that, and it still kind of continue to go through the season. So I left uh, probably about 20 or 30 feet just to try that out to see how that technique works. Really? I'd yeah. be interested to hear about that because I was telling people asked me would they keep going and I said they my experience is they pretty much done but yeah. I'd be interested to see how that works I, out. I, I made sure I shared with the row by row group like what, what happens when I again I'm only trying on 20 just feet. Just snapped off the flower head? Just snapped off the flower head. I had like an old man kind of tell me about that. Just snap off the head. It might not grow as um as lushful as before but you still have some you green. You might get one more harvest or something. That's all I want. Well actually I want two more. Two more. two more harvests. I don't just want one. I want about two more harvests. But you about to plant some more collard greens, so you uh, got to back up. Oh, I got to. Well, what I actually what I did was uh, two weeks before the for this happened, I did do my last round of collard. So I'm trying to see. We'll see how it goes, but if this weather pattern that we're dealing with down here is just, um, I've never seen anything like this. Everybody I talked to has never had this much rain and this much cold 
all within like the month of February. So I'm just thankful that this past week it, it dried up enough where I could kind of finally get all my potato plots because, you know, we planned in three different counties now. So it's a lot, a lot we try to do. A lot of people we try to feed. Yeah. Yeah, I didn't uh, I didn't have a backup of my collars because I was counting on being there to May. I did start me some English peas earlier this week, and uh, I was telling people in that video, if it strikes off and we don't have a spring like we do sometimes, it just goes straight to summer, then they probably ain't going to do real well. But if we can have some cooler weather longer in the spring, we might do all right. Well, I know, like for me, I, I skipped English peas already. I'm going straight green beans and straight peas. <laughs> like, I'm, just, I'm, just, I'm, <laughs> I'm just skipping you. English peas. We're going just straight to the, to the beans. We got some transplants under here. I want to show everybody. And these puppies uh, are going in the ground this weekend, I believe. They are ready to go. Let's, uh, let me take this one out in the middle here. Look at the we can do this without uh -huh. making a mess here. <laughs> so we got we got good roots on the bottom and everything right there. So so what, so what is that one? That is a I think a early sensation. So that's supposed to be a really good kind of orange uh, yellow bell pepper. Okay. So uh, once I see roots on the bottom of them uh, four inch pots there, they ready to go in the ground. I don't want them to get wrapped up too much. And then uh, I believe on these guys here, let's try this one here. Let's see what he looks like. What you think? Now that was, how long ago did you um, step them up? Oh, they've been stepped up, I'd say, two, three weeks oh, probably. Wow. I don't need a little water. But uh, I believe they're ready to go in the ground. I think so. I was looking at the long-term weather forecast, and I don't see nothing that scares me in the next couple weeks. Now, I did have some people... Um, comment and say that the euro model i guess the european <laughs> weather forecast model said so there was something coming early april that we need to watch out for but uh that's a long ways away so i got plenty of plants i might take a chance well but what you know the old timers always say be mindful what that that um that easter snap yeah so so don't get don't get too carried away yeah don't get too, don't get too carried away maybe get you you know 20 or 30 feet worth of it in the ground don't yeah. don't go all 30, what you say, 35 by 30 plot? Yeah. Don't go, don't go too big on them. Gotta have your insurance policy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Geico. <laughs> um, field peas. Y'all growing field peas on your uh, in your community garden? Yeah, I do a lot. Of, I do a lot of field peas and greens, green beans because that kind of helps with the uh, cover cropping mm -hmm. and the crop rotation. So I kind of use it as a way to to repair the land, uh, but also give us something that we can harvest. And when you're working in spaces where you try to have multiple volunteers, peas allow for a lot of people to be in the space, especially with, with COVID, mm -hmm. where you can have more groups out there getting their hands dirty, so. That's right. Well, as a lot of people know, this year in the seed industry, beans and peas is short. Okay. There ain't a whole lot of, you know what I mean, about this show? <laughs> there ain't a whole lot of them out there. And um, we ordered a bunch more than we're actually getting. And this is this has happened to everybody I've talked to in the seed industry. What they had allocated or tried to order, they've gotten shorted by the suppliers because suppliers ain't got as much as they thought they were going to have due to crop failures or increased demand or whatever. So everybody's been waiting on us to get field peas in, and I promised that we would have field peas in before y'all needed to plant them. And I think we're gonna come through on that promise. So we got 
Um, I added white acre peas recently. We added some lady cream peas, also mm. called lady finger peas. They Those love, are the little love, ones. They the love, we love lady fingers down here. Uh, <laughs> and I got a few more varieties coming in. I want to give you all an update on and explain to you the uh, the inventory situation here. So there was another variety called Big Boy Pea that I wanted to add this year. I am getting that in, but I ain't getting like 50 pounds of it. So probably won't be any bulk quantities on that, just packets, and those won't last long. Uh, the one I'm gonna have the most of, which is a really good one I like, probably the one I'll grow, is the Top Pick Pink Eye. Um, I will have 500 or so pounds of those mm. in. Um, so decent amount of those. And then the one everybody wants is that Zipper Pea. <laughs> Everybody likes a zipper pea. You like them? I, I, I prefer that, that lady finger that you just talked oh, okay. about. Yeah, I yeah, yeah. I, mean, I like the zipper pea. They, they, uh, they tend to get stung up a little bit more for me, but it's by far our most popular field pea variety. And I tried to order a whole pallet of them, which would be 2,000 pounds. I'm only getting 250 pounds of them. Yeah, so that's a little bit short. That is. That's real short. And so <laughs> what's going to happen, folks, is these are going to be gone in a hurry. So if you want some of these... You need to go to the Zipper Cream page on our website, use that wait list feature there, and be checking your emails, because as soon as we restock them and it fires that automatic email, they're gonna go like hotcakes. Now, I am gonna put in some one pound quantities on those, not a lot of them. We're trying to, my goal here is I want more people to be able to grow them as opposed to one person growing a heap of them. Okay. Um, so I'm going to prioritize more packets than one pounds. We'll have a few one pounds. But if you've been waiting on some of those, um, you definitely need to join that wait list feature, get that email. And as soon as you get that email, jump you don't need on to be playing around. Yeah, jump on it. <laughs> uh, just like that. Last week we did that fire sale on the... Uh, the last bit of the brickyard tomatoes we had, and they didn't last about an hour after that show got off. And some people were like, where's the link? I can't find it. They already gone, man. Yeah. Uh, what else? Speaking of peas and beans and stuff, we've had a lot of people asking us to carry some inoculants, and we found some that we liked here. I'm gonna go over our options. I used some of these when I planted my English peas recently. So what an inoculant is, you probably know this, Fredo. It's just a beneficial bacteria that's going to help you nitrogen fixation with your peas, your beans, all your legume crops. So uh, helps your nitrogen fixation. You don't have to give them as much fertilizer. And also it's supposed to help your yields on them. Yeah. So the thing with inoculants is, uh, for the most part, the way you'll find it is in this kind of dust formulation that you got to mix with water and you got to make this little slurry and you got to coat your seeds in it. That's right. And it can be a little bit messy, it, right? A little bit. It is messy. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, and we have that option for if you're doing eight to 10 pounds of seed, you're doing a cover crop plot or whatever, we got that option here. You'll make you a slurry with it, coat the seeds in it and go for that. But for you people that are just planting a row or two of beans, we found this granular option oh. here. You don't have to mix with water. You just sprinkle it in your planting furrow just like you do fertilizer or something. So I've got two sizes here. I've got this little bag here, which is enough for a 35 foot row. Okay. So you got a 35 foot row, break open this whole bag, sprinkle on there. You can't really overdo it with this stuff. Right. This guy is enough for a 150 foot row. Oh, that's what I need right there. And, and because it's in this can, you ain't got to use it all at one time. You yeah. can put it back in the refrigerator or whatever. So we keep these in cold storage so it keeps the bacteria uh, 
nice and alive. And, and, and this will last like in a refrigeration for, for a good period of it time? It has an expiration date. All these do, they expire at the end of the year. Okay. So you can see right there, it expires 12, 31, 21. So you don't want to use it before the end of the year. I just like that because especially work with like children a lot and you get your rolls and stuff, kind of go through and just say sprinkle, sprinkle, kind of uh -huh. add, <laughs> add a little bit in the season until you grind, until you feed. <laughs> That's right. That's right. So I use some of this on my English peas I planted and uh, I had a 30 foot row and I just use one of these per 30 foot row. But if, when I plant my field peas, I'll probably go with this guy uh, and do multiple rows with that guy. I like that. So we got both options. If you're just doing a row or two of beans and peas or if you're doing a plot of cover crops, you can go with the slurry method there. Let's make sure you wear some gloves with that slurry one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. from experience. There's nothing like having on a white shirt after you don't hit some slurry, then all of a sudden <laughs> you just accidentally wipe and it. it doesn't come out as easily as you want. There's not enough um, bleach in the world for that. <laughs> um, so I missed last week's show. I was, uh, I was, had a little bit of a sinus thing with that pollen, all that pine pollen's everywhere, man. Man, um, For a couple days, I went and got COVID tested, it was negative. I recovered pretty quick. But I had something on the show notes, Dad, and then mentioned a little bit that I kind of wanted to talk about a little bit, <clears throat> and that is this term sustainable, which is, <laughs> is thrown around a lot. And um, everybody's got their own definition of it. And my definition, the way I kind of look at it is sustainable means you're minimizing inputs. It's something that kind of maintains itself and you don't have to put as much inputs in. The problem with this is not everybody has access to the same resources. So what might be sustainable for one person, for Fredo, might not be sustainable for me. <clears throat> so one person over here may do a wood chip garden and they call that sustainable because they got access, they can get as much wood chips as they want. Whereas me over here, I can't get any wood chips. And if I do, I might have to drive a long way to pick them up or borrow somebody's truck. So that wood chip wouldn't be very sustainable for me. Right. On the other hand, we've got access to some real good compost down the road we can get. For me, that compost is pretty sustainable because it's pretty cheap and it works pretty good. The fellow over here doesn't have a good compost source. That's not very sustainable not for all. him. So to me, it's a relative term. Yeah, and, like, and then I always get caught up on, when we talk about sustainable, it's something that should be passed along to the next generation. Leave it better than you found, found it. Than you found it. And then also I look at sustainable as, are we doing methods that can be taught to other individuals, you know? So my definition of sustainability is all about, are we developing techniques, procedures, and steps that, that the next generation can follow and duplicate? Because in order for it to be sustainable, it has to go beyond your lifetime and beyond the next person's lifetime. So about the time I'm thinking of, if we can always go to that cotton gin, because it's always going to be there, then, then I can tell my cousin, my nieces, my nephews, that's where we go get our gin from to do what we do in our garden. Mm -hmm. um, so that's always like the key thing in my definition of sustainability is how, how much of it can I pass along to the very next generation to duplicate, to replicate, so that way we have a continuous harvest beyond our lifetime because growing food, we, we need it to, to exist. That's right. That's <laughs> so right. if you come up with methods that they can't go down the road and replicate, then then it's not truly sustainable. So it needs to be somewhat simple so you can teach somebody else how to that do it. Be like like super simple. You, that's how you want growing food shouldn't be a big scientific experiment. As long as the people that have been that are growing have done the research, 
then you can kind of replicate that and then just keep going and keep going. The next group comes in, and we'll talk more about that when we get into the community garden and the school garden pieces as well. All right, good deal. Before we do that, we always like to go through a few new varieties here. What do you think about that? Oh, yeah, I'm ready. You ready? All right, so let's start off with this one right here. I love growing butternut squash. I've got some butternut squash, the South Anna variety, sitting in the rack underneath my barn that I harvested back late summer that's still good that we've still been eating on. Uh, they just store so well. This is a new variety here, and I would tell you I don't have a lot of these. Um, this is called Autumn Gold. Look at that, ain't that pretty? Yeah, that is. So instead of the normal tan color on them, they're kind of orange with the tan streaks. Kind of looks like a Kushaw squash, except it's orange with the tan streaks there. And these are supposed to have really good flavor. So it's a normal size butternut, but just really good coloration on them. Some people would use these strictly for decoration, but they're also very high eating quality <laughs> on those. This one right here, the next two I'm gonna talk about if you want to just play around with growing some pumpkins from market or to sell, these little white pumpkins right here, you can get big money for those things. Mm. Uh, folks, you know, pay a dollar, several dollars sometimes for these guys. So it's a little, it's called Casparita, a little white pumpkin, probably gets that big yeah, that's around. How big does it and get? folks love to get these for kids. They paint them and stuff in the fall. You can also eat this one. Tastes a lot like an acorn squash. That's what I'm worried about. Can you eat yeah. it? <laughs> you can eat this one, uh, but a lot of people grow them for ornamental purposes. This one, I think you get around like 15 or so per plant. So really, really productive oh, wow. uh, on those little white pumpkins, and they hold their white color pretty well in the field. So excited about that one. It's called Casparita. This one here is um, my wife makes me find one of these every year. Now that I've got the seeds, I can grow them. It's a pumpkin called Porcelain Doll. Okay. It's the only pink pumpkin out there. You won't find another pink <laughs> pumpkin. And um, so this is a big one, almost like our uh, Blue Bayou pumpkin. And it's it, edible pumpkin, okay. good pie pumpkin. Make one of these, you can put up the... Um, you, you can uh, roast it or whatever or and put up the pie filling in the freezer or whatever and then just pull it out. You can freeze it, save it. But these things right here go for pretty high dollar on the uh, farmer's market okay. over there. You got a pump, this pumpkin patch over there around your way, ain't it? I think so, up the road, up there going to Sasa. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyway. Well, I might start a pumpkin patch too. Start your pumpkin <laughs> patch. These things are uh, fun to grow, this porcelain doll and... Uh, those things right there, I've seen them go for $10, $15 a piece before. That is pretty, though. These next two I'm excited about. You like grilling squash? I do. I'm all about having, uh, when we do the school gardens and community garden themes, you got to have like a, a grill um, garden bed. Oh, really? Like a garden bed that's strictly designed for let's grow stuff that we can grill. Man, I like that. <laughs> I like that idea. So in the past, we've grown, I don't know if you've ever grown the round squash, like the eight ball. Or the... Yeah, I just started last year off because of you guys. Yeah. And so those are good because you can cut them in half and throw them on the grill. We got these two new ones right here, and I'll let you hold one and I'll hold one. Okay. These are zucchini just like the round ones are, except these are egg-shaped. Oh, wow. We got a green one called Green Griller. And I think Dad was trying to, he called that Granada last week. He didn't realize that said grenade. Oh, yeah, it does say grenade. <laughs> so that's the yellow version. So these are, are, are awesome little zucchini. So they're, they're not round. They're kind of egg-shaped, almost like a little miniature eggplant. Wow, use, 40 days maturity. Yep, come off quick. You just slice some puppies right there in half. Maybe a little oil, maybe a little season. Throw it on a hot grill grate. 
I like mine to have a little bit of crunch to it. I don't like it real mushy. Okay. Uh, does it? Does it? Is it a bush variety or yeah. a vine variety? It's a bush variety. So this would be good, like in a container. Yep. You grow this in a container. It's not going to take up a lot of room. Supposedly, it doesn't have a whole lot of spines on it, so your fruit won't get real bruised up yeah. when you harvest it. And it's pretty open as far as the. Um, the, the growth habit of it, so you ain't fighting through a bunch of leaves to harvest it. You can reach in there and get them pretty easily. Oh, this is a good one for the container garden. I like this. So I'm gonna, I ain't decided if I'm going to plant the green griller or the grenade or maybe one of each, but I'm definitely growing some of these, uh, getting in the ground pretty soon within the next week or so. That's perfect. All right. Now let's get into the main part of the show. We're going to talk about community gardens. So first, let's talk about... How we met, Fredo. How did we meet? So we used to do a lot of trade shows um, and small market farmer shows. Yep. And uh, you worked for a company that, that made compost. Yep. And that's how we met. We seen you there on that kind of trade show circuit. Yep, yep, yep. That was many moons ago. Many moons. Many moons ago, Five, yeah. Five, six years ago? Yeah, yeah. I think, yeah. About the same time I kind of started doing a community garden. So, um yeah, it was just all about compost and food, and, but you know, before that, I was just trying to just figure out how to grow food simple, because mm -hmm. I was like reading a lot of information. We were kind of going to a lot of um, conferences where people like, you know, go no-till or go, um, you know, intense gardening and do like permaculture or do all these different techniques, and I kept finding myself like, this is too complicated. I just want to eat. Yeah, those, those <laughs> sustainable agriculture conferences. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, but then, you know, we just, like, we bonded like that. But I really felt like we got to know each other because of the expo. Because mm -hmm. it was just like three days where we're, we're just talking about, like, food, talking about, like, how to grow food to make it simple. Like, you were across from each other, different uh, plots. So you would send people my way. I would send people your way. And then eventually we kind of just all would go out and harvest okra at the end of the day just so we felt like we were doing something. Yeah. <laughs> so when we used to do a demo garden at the Sunbelt Expo, Fredo had a booth there with that compost company uh, that he worked for. And so we spent a lot of time together talking about growing food and all that good stuff. So were you gardening and growing food before the compost deal, or that kind of got you into it? No, I was actually doing it before, so probably about 13 years ago, like, um, I had um, started doing market gardening, was working at a farm called Cornelia Farms in America's Georgia, okay. and, uh, and so we were uh, an intentional community, and we raised everything that we ate on the property, and so... That really like spearheaded, there's um, a philosophy that we had that was just called like partnership farming, uh, which is about us sharing our resources, whether it was the land, the equipment, and so forth with our neighbors. And that really got me going and I stumbled upon um, square foot gardening. Mm -hmm. Just about raised boxes and containers. I was like, man, this is real simple. My mom is old. Um, I stay in a rural environment. And, and that just really got me going and then probably I don't know, maybe five years or six years after that, I kind of ran into like Greg uh, and I ran into Chad and all that with the composting and that kind of just like really just brought me like full circle. And then, um, not, not, not the Greg normally. No, <laughs> different Greg. Different Greg. <laughs> um, and so we kind of just really just started like from there. And, and what, what got me more than anything was that uh, my mother, my grandmother was a, was an old cook. Mm -hmm. And so she used to like, you know, throw down in the kitchen. Yep. And, um, and my grandmother made like a, a cookbook and I just felt to honor her. It'd be really dope uh, for me to be able to grow every vegetable that she has in her cookbook. Okay. So that's what really got me started. And then to be able to grow it 
and then be able to bring it to my mom and bring it to like the other people because like, I'm originally from Plains, Georgia. So, okay. you know, so I'm, I'm Jimmy Carter yeah, Jimmy territory. Carter territory, population probably about 560 people, <laughs> all like on two streets. Um, but but that's what like raised me up. And so I just kind of went from, from that standpoint of um, let's just grow food, honor my grandmother and, and the people in that neighborhood and also felt that I found out when you plant food, you always tend to plant more than you can eat. Yeah, <laughs> like you never you like you can't help yourself. Like I just want a whole field of stuff, and then you realize I cannot eat that many greens. Yeah, I can't eat that many peas. So then you just learn how to share the harvest, and um, and that's what kind of evolved in some of the work I'm currently doing now. Gotcha. So you did the, the compost thing for a little bit. What got you really hardcore into the community gardens? This the stuff you're doing right now. Uh, my family. Uh, so, like I always tell people, they they always ask, when did you first start your your very first interaction with a school garden? It was when my son was in the second grade. Mm -hmm. um, I was just being a parent, going to visit the school, and they had these raised boxes that were just sitting there. And they had, like, I always tell people, if you don't tend to your, your garden boxes, you're going to basically become a turf grass farmer mm -hmm. because it's going to be overgrown with grass. grass gonna just grow all on up, and, it, and then it takes forever to get it out. Mm -hmm. And so it just started off with, you know, here's an empty space. I know how to grow food. My son goes to school here. Uh, let me just help him out to kind of get started. And, and that's what really triggered it. And then it was just watching the interaction of my son being, like, in second grade and him by the third grade, knowing what to do, that he could teach fifth graders how to go out the boxes. So anything as, as a parent, you know, watching your child, like instruct somebody older than them, that kind of motivates you. But then I saw also what it was doing um, in Doherty County, where we're from, that the this Department of Nutrition was really trying to build more of these boxes in all the elementary schools so the kids could grow and harvest and be able to serve it into the cafeteria, but they were missing that component of somebody that really knew technically how to grow food. It was more like um, volunteers and, and things, which are great, but you really need somebody that understands like crop planning, crop rotation, um, how to water properly and, you know, and feel comfortable. And so that's really what, what kind of got me started. And then um, as, we, as we just started evolving, new things started happening because it was the school gardens at first, but then we started to notice that the, um, the local community centers were also doing like health initiatives. And again, they had space, they had land, but again, they didn't know how to use it or how to grow. So it created like a, another avenue that I didn't even like think about. So you've been focused on not only putting in these new gardens, but trying to teach the people how to to, to keep them going. <laughs> going back to that word sustainable, That's you know. Right. So it's That's like right. I can if I just drop it into a place and bring the soil, bring the plants, but I don't teach you about your watering cycle. I don't teach you about the fertility. Matter of fact, I don't teach you what the planting season. Then what ends up happening is you have all this energy um, during the fall. Then by the time spring comes around, nobody knows what to do next. Yeah. And so as a, anybody has ever grown food, you, you, that's something that you dislike is watching your harvest just sit there without um, anybody eating it or grabbing it. Just like, that was just, that was just a waste. Mm -hmm. And so, but learning how to teach people, because you'd be amazed at how many people don't know how to crop greens. 
Yep. Like when they see some greens growing up, they just want to take a big axe or a big big knife and just cut the whole bush down. And you're like, it's like a teardrop. She's like, no, just just crop the leaves and it keep growing. Um, and so you just learn that we have to teach our communities how to grow food, but also how to harvest it. And then it was a whole other um, avenues that, that came from there. So I can. What's I, that old saying? You you give a man a fish, feed him for a day. Teach a man to fish and feed him for a lifetime. For a while. All right, so let's 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 get into uh, this stuff is fascinating to me. Let's get into the, my my kids just started preschool and they have a I see it every morning when I drop them off from school some raised beds out there that ain't nothing growing in them and I think they do plant them every year but they don't def, they don't keep them growing year round like that they maybe should I, I might have to uh, give them a little help volunteer help them out it don't uh, take a lot of time trust me so. Let's talk about starting a community garden, whether it be a school garden or urban garden or, or a community center garden or whatever, whatever you want to call it. What 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 do you call it when you, it's not a school garden? So uh, it's both. So it's either I call it a community garden or a community farm or a community orchard. Okay. It's all about for the for the neighborhood. Okay, I got you. I got you. So when you start one of these, a new community garden, your goal is to teach these people how to grow their own food, right? That's right. Yeah, and so so that's that's the that's my main objective is at the end is to have the people in a position where they can manage it themselves. They know how to plant it themselves and take care of themselves. Because early on, what I found out was that if you if you babysit them a lot, like walk side by side and kind of just hold their hand, they eventually don't ever let go. Yeah. And as you start to hear about other areas that, that have the same need, you have to go travel to these places. So one thing I couldn't do was being being what being many places at the same time. So we learned that if we develop these techniques of how to grow, when to grow, that it makes the community, going back to that word, sustainable. So it let them have the ownership of their food access and where it came from, because our goal um, is always to um, to, to empower the community to, to take ownership of where their food comes from. And so the more that we could teach them hands-on what to do, the more that that person can pass it on to the next one. And so what we always tried to do early on was to create like an incentive program because we were already growing in other community spaces and farming spaces, so we would utilize that, that relationship to, to show them what fresh produce looks like and get them started and they get excited because um, one of the things we always do when we start our garden spaces is we do collards in the fall, but also in the fall we also plant our strawberries. Mm -hmm. And it always shocked people. They're like, you plant strawberries in October? Like, yeah, because by now we're getting strawberries that people can walk by and eat. Mm -hmm. So then it's that whole connection that just like like blows their mind. But you got to teach them. You got to put in that work way back in the fall. In the fall. To get them strawberries right now. Yeah, and, and so like our goal is has always been like, do we do it's like it's been twofold so with our school gardens we had to decide were we making a decision for it to be a teaching experience so it's like show kids a lot of variety what they can grow um, the different different food groups that are out there and and do that or can we show them how to be production farmers so rather than having a lot of variety we might have two or three crops that are like where we could grow in abundance so they could have a, a plentiful harvest to do something like um, a community meal within like two to three months. Mm -hmm. So we always kind of had to decide, are we just teaching people or are we also teaching them how to become like urban farmers so they can go for production to feed their communities? And so that was always the two questions that we asked people when we want to get engaged. 
I got you. So, so up front, you're doing a good bit of the leg work up front initially, and then they holding on to your hand, and you kind of trying to just slowly let them let go. Yeah. So they'll kind of learn how to do it on their own, and maybe have a little few bumps along the way. You got to have bumps, but and then what we what we found too by kind of slowly pulling people back was that they begin to take ownership of how to grow, and then they themselves are able to go in other communities and like start gardens and start farms. Yeah. You know, it's always interesting to watch on like Facebook and social media, people that have volunteered out of community garden spaces that are also establishing gardens in neighborhoods where they live at, practicing those same techniques that they learned just by volunteering and um, and getting their hands dirty with Which me. is like a, a network of roots you put out once you <laughs> teach one person, they go teach somebody else. Yeah, it's like, it's like row by row. That's right, that's right. <laughs> so as far as what you're teaching them, obviously you're teaching them, you know, planting and growing something, but are you teaching them other skills like seed starting? We see one of the, the, the things people struggle with the most uh, even on our Facebook group is seed starting, but that to me, that's one of those things, man, if you can get it down pat, it's a very valuable skill to have. So are y'all teaching them stuff like that too? Well, we do, we do both. Yeah. Uh, so, so with that is like seed starting, as you kind of know, you have to have like the right environment mm -hmm. to do seed. So you thankful, can't take a lot of shortcuts you can't, you can't cut it, cut it short. You can't do something too fast. You got to have like the right temperature, the right, but what we've learned is that if we can early in the year, have some people that are willing to volunteer because we're thankful in Doherty County that through one of our partnerships, we have access to a greenhouse. Mm -hmm. So that greenhouse allows for us to work um, directly with high school age students and kind of show them how to start seeds. And then we utilize that to kind of educate um, our vision again is about sustainability. So if we could teach these high school kids how to start their own seeds in a greenhouse, but then open up to show people how to do what the high school students are doing at home, then again, it allows for more variety because, I mean, you're limited what you can get at the big box store. So, but if you are able to start your own tomato seeds, you can have about like 50 different varieties growing in a small 24-pack tray Right. That you would have at the box store, you know, yeah. like your, your yellow tomatoes or your you're orange. You're not gonna find any purple boy, lemon boy at, at the box. Nah, store. nah. Well, you might find something like that, but I don't know if it's a tomato. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I got you. I got you. Uh, so, give me an idea of of kind of how you look at it. how do you create these gardens so they are manageable for people who don't have a lot of experiences gardening. Obviously, you don't want to throw a whole lot at them or throw crops. They're really difficult to grow initially, Adam. Yeah. So walk me through that a little bit. Okay, so so we go we go old fashioned. First thing that we always ask is how much sunlight does the spot get? You know, because when we first started gardens like at school, they just want to put them anywhere. And if it gets shaded, right, it's just like, oh, it's hot, so we want to be underneath the tree with a garden. <laughs> uh, we understand you're in South Georgia, but you got to think about like sunlight. So that's always first and foremost sunlight. And then the second thing we ask is that what sort of access do we have like to water? You know, because people don't think about you have to water these plants. You want to be No, water. nobody wants that old pail, and nobody wants to run a hundred foot water hose you have to bring back, then put back up every time the water. And so those was like the two things. But then from there, we fell in love with them doing raised bed um, container gardens. And it's just because when you do like the math, our garden beds are like four feet by four feet or four foot by eight. It's really easy math to figure out like how many yards of compost that you need. And by the fact that we were doing square foot gardening, we're able to 
basically divide the box up to determine how many plants that we need and we're able to incorporate with our school gardens a lot of like the math skills so you can do like an example as a four by four and you're doing one plant per foot how many plants you need oh 16 and the, the math teacher could be a part of the garden and so we, we started the simplicity of working from there so y'all standardize everything or Every, to. it had to because it's because you don't want to kind of keep having to re-explain the techniques or you wanted people to be able to take the 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 system and share it with others. So we went with traditional four by four or four by, now we do more four by eight beds because we found that it gives us more um, production mm -hmm. of what we want to grow. Because I mean, think about it. If you're trying to feed 200 kids in a cafeteria, you need more than just like six collard plants. You need right. to get like some volume going. And so then from there, we also kind of expanded into when we did our urban plots, we did a lot of following what you had did, which is like, let's look at most times when you're getting your soil test, it always comes back like certain square foot per acre and things like this. So let's just break it down the way Travis showed us. Look at a, a 30 by 35 plot or something close to 1,000 feet. So then you can kind of figure out how much fertilizer you think you need. Um, you can say, okay, if we're doing a, a 4 by a 30 by 30 plot, it's going to give us 3 foot spacing eight the nine rows we could figure that part out so we just did everything with a system mm -hmm. and so then it became easy for us to go explain it to people like no we don't like when we talk about community gardens or urban farms people are like well how much room do you need we could say well we just need an eighth of an acre well what can you do in an eighth of an acre and we're like with this eighth of an acre it allows for us to put three 30 by 30 foot plots with the drip irrigation the water source and it became like a system and like so this past year we were able to really track to see that we produce off of like a quarter acre over two, two to two to three months over like a thousand pounds of collard greens. Wow. And so going to the food bank, that was enough to feed, I think it was about about 700 families, like a bunch of collards for the holidays. That's good. And so man. that's just all about your systems. That's awesome. Um, so. Obviously, y'all grow a lot of collard greens. <laughs> yeah, you haven't caught on to that. <laughs> I love the uh, greens. <laughs> um, how do you determine, besides collards, but, and collards, I always say this, it, collards, are, as far as biomass go, are the most productive thing you can grow almost you know, a, a good portion of the year, except when they bolt like mine just did. <laughs> but assuming they make it through May, and them stalks end up being four foot tall sometimes, you consider the total biomass of harvest you've gotten off that one stalk of collards, it, there's nothing else in the garden that really compares to it per, on a per plant basis. Yeah, per square footage, yeah. Um, so y'all grow a lot of collard greens. How do you determine the other varieties they're gonna be planting? You know, you don't wanna give them nothing too crazy. You probably don't wanna just throw some gynoecious cucumbers at them <laughs> nah. and explain to them how they have to have a pollinator and stuff like that. So how do you decide which varieties or which crops, if you do want to throw something new at them, how do you do that? Right, so, so we look at it from two, two vantage points. So with our community farm plots, we're doing those, like again, in partnership with the, the local food bank or a hunger relief organization. So they kind of give us a list of what their uh, participants would like to receive. So we say, this is what we can grow. Um, and so the community space, we're also thinking about, you want to grow something that the community can help you harvest. So we do a lot of crops that I call uh, more fruit crops, that you get like multiple pickings, multiple harvests. So like squash, green beans, like tomatoes, bell peppers, like that sort of stuff for the summertime. Okay. <laughs> 
you could do okra, but okra, okra, some people get itchy when they harvest okra. Oh, yeah, that's, yeah, I got you, I got you. <laughs> yeah, but you could do okra, okay. you know, yeah, 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 you know, but like, but okra could work if there's like an environment where we always do like 200 feet of okra so people to kind of come in and like pick, but a lot of times at the food bank, it's kind of like in that category if you have to choose between planting okra or do I plant squash. Right, I got I, you. I'm going to go with squash, yeah, you know. Yeah, I got you. You feed a lot more people with squash than you do and, and, and then, so with the school garden, it's kind of like the same thing where we sit down with the, the cafeteria managers, see what they have recipes for, um, direct them nutrition, and find out what are some simple things we can grow that kids can easily produce. So it's like your greens, your lettuces, your, your carrots, your, your radishes, you know, things like that was easy for them to grow, doesn't require like a lot of input, but it's um, something they can visually see like an expanding. Now we don't do at our schools a lot of um, tomatoes um, and peppers just because the school year kind of ends mm -hmm. right when you're starting to put those into the ground. But what we do before the kids leave school is we always do like a big like sweet potato plant. So we use sweet potatoes in our raised boxes as like a sort of cover crop. And then they're there when they get back. When they get school. back, it's like it's like go go find gold. I like that. <laughs> so so we try to always like balance. That's a good it. way to keep the the beds from getting overrun with weeds. Yeah. During the summer when the kids are out of school, you plant sweet potatoes there as long as somebody's there to water them. Then. You back in school, boom, let's, let's get some sweet potatoes. And, and then the other thing that we have to speak of the watering is that we've added, like, the integration of, like, drip irrigation and micro sprinklers. So that way they can just set stuff up on a timer mm -hmm. and just let it run at a certain time. So that also helps guarantee that there's going to be a harvest. Because when we first started, I mean, you ever try to, like, uh, they have a second grader water a plant with, like, a, a spray nozzle? Make a mess, man. They put that. They I don't know why. If it has a multi setting, they always want to put it on jet, <laughs> and it just like, and it's oh, like about to wash a car, man. It's like no, put it on shower or mist. Like no, it's like jet, and it's like so, so, so we integrated a lot of um, you know what you guys talk about a lot is looking at what the big farmers do and replicating it like for the small scale grower, and then it allows for um, when we do like field trips to these big farms, the kids have something to relate to. So they can look at the um, the irrigation system and see the drip line. They're like, oh, we kind of have that in our garden. Or seeing the overhead sort of sprinkler, like that sort of con connection. Right. Yeah. All right. Uh, let's talk about, let's give somebody some tips if there are some people out there that want to start doing this in their own uh, school or in the community. And I think you've provided some great insight already. So first, let's talk about funding. So how would one person go about getting some funding for either starting a new school garden or a new community center garden. All right, so so the first thing that we were blessed with was that, again, the school system itself had an initiative where they were able to provide a lot of the costs. So they were able to cover like the lumber, the soil, and the plants because the schools themselves were also going in that path in that direction. So we were able to partner with them. There's a priority of theirs to put in the budget to do it. Exactly. So we just worked that. And then like because of like the health um, benefits of it, there were like um, health departments or local um, uh, medical centers that were also following that initiative doing more preventive like health things. So they were like, oh, we need to do more community gardens, community spaces. So what ends up happening. to keep people out the hospitals right that's right and in the local cities were also following like that same track they're like well if we have a healthy community healthy city everybody's healthier it'll be good for tourism be good for all, all this and so our first initiatives were all through these partnerships that were just looking for somebody to execute what they already had in their budget 
And then once we got those established, we were kind of able to to work with like local businesses. So it was just like a like a local you know car dealership or a local bank and get them to sponsor uh, putting in a couple raised garden beds like at a senior retirement home. So we had to have of course like a letter or proposal, but they bought into it to, to donate and things like that. So it was really like it wasn't so much of us going out to 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 we basically had to just go out to make ourselves available to people. So you would say the, the first step is just getting people on board with the idea and, and them understanding and the importance of growing your own food, growing healthy food. And then from there, once they see the results, it, it kind of speaks for it itself. It speaks for itself. And, and then like I said, with, with like your son's school, like I did at mine, the very first thing I did was just volunteer the fact that I just had some time mm -hmm. and I was willing just to, to show up there and just be present. Mm -hmm. Because sometimes you never find out what opportunities are in, um, at the table unless you're sitting at the table. Mm -hmm. And that's what really like opened up for us was just the fact that they saw me want to come to my son's school and, and helping out. And then they started asking questions like, who are you? And I'm like, well, you know, I work for, you know, a composting company and we help with that. And then I have some relationships with people that provide seeds and fertilizers. The next thing they know, they're like, Farmer Fredo. I'm like, who is that guy? <laughs> oh, that's me now. All right, cool. Let's go. <laughs> um, a few more things here. So you, you mentioned a little bit of the Savoy, but how do you keep it sustained so it isn't just a flash in the pan, something that people get real excited about, they do it one year, and then they're kind of like just lose interest in it. How do you keep that interest sustained? And a, a part of what, we, what we've what we been blessed with is uh, partnerships of community. And so uh, uh, most of my community spaces, like again, we work with the school system, we work with um, parks and recreation, we work with like the local like health department. And so those three entities always have personnel that are available like to help out. So that's like your, your maintenance crew, um, your weeding crew, your planting crew. So that's like the foundation. And then we try to find um, um, community groups that are, are that are involved being active. So it might be a Boy Scout troop, a Girl Scout troop, or it could be like your youth baseball or football team that's just trying to show kids beyond sports how to contribute. Um, in this past year, we've really been able to build with our local like athletic team, so like from our, our colleges. Okay. So we have like the college like athletic director like really providing, you know, like the, the softball Albany team. Albany State. Yeah, Albany State, Georgia Southwestern, like university where their athletic department has been like volunteering their student athletes on the weekends to kind of come out and maintain. And then we also just reach out to, you know, retirees in our community, like, hey, if you if you you're retired, but they still live like an active life, you know, they're they're going like the yoga and they're going bicycling along the river. And so they'll come out to the garden and also just help out. But we've been doing a really good job of promoting um, open volunteer days. Okay. So as the more you come out and volunteer, the more they understand that, oh, I know how to do this. Oh, I know the difference now between, you know, like some, some chickweed and, and things like that. So they feel like they have ownership of the space and we're still ourselves still trying to like, connect to the community surrounding our garden spaces. So we have, um, you know, like harvest days. So as we kind of know, oh, our greens are plentiful now, we'll put out flyers or Facebook posts and tell people in the neighborhood, stop by Wednesday, 11 o'clock, come harvest the greens that you want or the peas that you want. And, and, and that kind of builds like the, the community piece of it. And we always try to have our garden spaces, our community spaces surrounded by um, local churches or um, like low income sort of housing as well as like some sort of like after school program. 
So that way the kids could have something to do. And, and even with our school gardens, we realized that it kind of gives the teachers a break by us having a garden there and us volunteering to help plant with the kids. So the teachers are able um, to take a break. And especially with the pandemic, we really felt that what we were doing allowed for everybody to, you know, I mean, I mean, come on, it's been like a year for everybody to be mm-hmm. like to breathe and feel like they can still be community and still practice social distancing and still give back something that we all found out that we needed is that at, when, when the pandemic hit, when you couldn't really go in the grocery stores and if you did go, stuff was scarce. So why not just walk down the street? I mean, uh, like I told everybody, like businesses shut down during the pandemic is what you guys know. We, we can't stop growing food it actually increased for us. It yeah. was like. Man, I can't I can't get a break. <laughs> so. so not only are you growing clean, healthy food, teaching about to do it, but you in some uh aspect of you keeping some of these kids out of trouble too, giving them something to do to occupy their time and uh learn teaching them some skills that they wouldn't know otherwise. Yeah, exactly. And and then also like we're also learning from ourselves like how to communicate across generations, you know, like how to how to use TikTok for like growing food or how to use um, you know, all these apps that these like I don't know what apps these kids be on, but they be on a bunch of apps. <laughs> um, <laughs> but 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 like you said, it helps everybody participate in the well-being of like our community. Because what we found out during the pandemic, we were amazed at like how many of our neighbors really were like was suffering because they didn't have access to food or didn't know where to go get things. And so by the fact that we could reach out to a local church or a local business and say, hey, we, we're trying to turn this, convert this quarter acre of land into like food production to feed these 75 people over here. Can you help us out? It was amazing the response that we had, that we're still receiving. You know, we do volunteer days and, and people just show up ready to work. I mean, I'm always humble that. The, all the age groups that show up and get, you know, down and dirty with me. So that's why I wear my Fresh Crew shirt because they're, the, they're my Fresh, fresh crew. crew. Yeah. I like that. Yeah, yeah, Fresh. Fresh Crew. Fresh like Crew. That. All right, man. I, I really enjoyed kind of – I kind of understood what you did a little bit, but kind of getting in the nuts and bolts of it uh, was really interesting for me. And if you have any other questions about what Fredo does or, or kind of want to do the same thing in your community um, – you could put them in the comments here, and Fredo might look at them. But you got an Instagram? Yeah, you could just follow me, Farmer Fredo, on Instagram. I'm on cool. Facebook, Farmer Fredo. But 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 He's I also w- in our group. But I was about to say the real thing that row by row group. I mean, if you if you got any question related to growing tag food, tag, reach out. I mean, are you Farmer Fredo on there? Or are you Fredando? I'm far afraid of. Okay, okay. okay <laughs> I couldn't remember what your uh, what your handle was. Yeah, that, that's my that's my handle, good buddy. Ten four. Ten four. Ten four. Ten four. All right. So holler at him on the road by road group if you got any questions and uh, want to get something like this started in your community. I like what you said about it creates a sense of community, especially in a time like this when people are stuck at home. People can get out. You know, everybody's outside. You ain't got to worry about COVID as much. Everybody's outside working, sweating. Man, and like you said, it's like stories, too. You find out so much about your neighbors and what you have in common. And, you know, just like the day before I came here, we're outside planting um, potatoes out there in the field because the ground is finally dried up. And everybody has, like, a story of their parents dragging them out to the garden where they, you know, like, like come on out here and get to work. And you just like... Man, we all have these stories in, in Southwest Georgia, huh? <laughs> all right, let's get into some questions. Freighter's going to help me out here with some of these questions from last week's show. I'll let you go first. All right, so this first question um, is for Travis, and it's from, 
I guess you put out this. It's health, bees, and farming, or heath. I think it's heath, bees. Heath, bees, and farming. Well, it said, but it says, will that grow light work for starting watermelon? So I'm guess that's from last week's show. Yeah, talking about those uh, grow light kits we got. Yeah, they work perfect for watermelons. Those little twelve cell trays there, uh, and that one kit you got. You grow 48 watermelon transplants in that one kit. That's a bunch of watermelon transplants. So uh, if you don't need to grow that many, you can just plant a few. But yeah, those little two inch cells in there would be perfect for growing a watermelon transplant. And um, if you didn't see my video I did last week, uh, I was emphasizing if you are growing watermelons, I'd highly, highly, highly recommend transplanting them as opposed to direct seeding them. Number two here for Fredo, this is from Charlie Shepard, and he says all of his vegetables take way longer to, uh, excuse me, all the vegetables take way longer than we publish to harvest. Uh, so he's growing our seeds, he waters and fertilizes properly, so he's saying the maturity dates on our seed packets ain't always what he ends up getting in his garden. Well, well like from my experience, you could, that's just the maturity date is a guideline of where you can anticipate the harvest. Because um, there's other variables that factor in, like, like what we experience here with the cold, the rain, the weather, all that can delay or stunt the growth of your plant. So you just have to just be, it's just a ballpark figure. Because sometimes like the scenarios don't work into our favor. So I'm always just telling people, you know, just be a little bit patient. It might take two more weeks than what you originally thought. Just because, I mean, like what we experienced, like February and January, like the coldest and the wettest months that we've had. And we've seen crops that we normally don't deal with take a little bit longer and then like like what you just experienced, get a little bit of heat wave, all of a sudden your collars decide that it's on June. Mm -hmm. Time to go, time to go. Uh, yeah, I would, I would add to that. So I was talking to a, um, one of our seed vendors that works with some of the, the bigger onion growers up there in Vidalia. And I, I know for my onions, normally once we get into March, a little bit, maybe middle of March, I'm kind of on the lookout for them things to kind of start falling over pretty soon, getting close to harvest time. But they're not, they don't even look close to like <laughs> that. And I was asking him, I said, how are these commercial guys doing with their onions? And he said, it's slow. He said, it's going to be a late harvest this year for everybody just because it was so cold. It just slowed everything down. Yeah. So very, very subjective. Yeah, exactly. All right. All right, Travis, this is from, oh, Gator Pixel Doctor Repair. That's a name. Mm -hmm. All right. Do you have any suggestions on producing more female blooms on butternut squash? I just had a few volunteers pop up since it has warmed up and rained some. FYI, I'm in Zone 9A, North Florida. All right. So this is an interesting thing uh, with winter squash, and you'll see it with butternuts too. And we, <clears throat> we frequently get people that send us a message when this happens. So when you, you plant your squash out there and they start vining and they start producing flowers, especially with butternut, is the plants are going to make the male flowers first. And there's a good strategy behind this if you think about it. The male flowers have the pollen and so that's going to really start to bring in the pollinators. The female flowers can be delayed up to 10 days sometimes, maybe even a little bit more. So you will see all male flowers at first. A lot of times and then the female flowers will come in once you've got them pollinators kind of um, scheduled and acclimated hey this is where it's <laughs> happening I need to be right here yeah and um, so just just give it a little time you should get 
plenty of female flowers, but your male flowers definitely tend to show up first. Y'all do any winter squash or does that just take up too much room? I'm thinking about it this year because I'm from talking to the food bank that, you know, um, like your butternut squash can store so well. And being that, looking at the health benefits that it kind of offers and being that we've had success with our sweet potatoes, that that might be something that we, like Kai did the sweet potatoes uh, for the school gardens, maybe doing like a patch of like butternut squash and just kind of see how it goes as another uh, temporary crop. But now, but it also can kind of serve as a good cover crop too. Because mm -hmm. if it gets so big, then that, that's the other thing I look for in the summer. Like, let's shade everything out so when the, when the fall comes around, we can go, go hardcore again. Get back in it. Yeah. Last one here is from Tom Kearns. And uh, he's a question regarding heat mass. He's been using grow lots of heat mass to germinate seeds. After they germinate, after they pop up out of the seed star mix, do you turn the heat mat off, take them off, leave them on there? What do you think? So like, so for my experience, it's all about the variety that you're growing. So most of the time I use the heat mat on um, my warm season. So you're talking your tomatoes, your peppers, your watermelons. And a lot of times, like in my greenhouse, it might still be kind of cool. So I don't ever really remove them off of the heat mat just because I want that soil to stay warm as it's growing and producing. So my because of what I'm growing with the heat mat, I don't I don't ever take it off really. Um, so. yeah. I agree. You if you if you don't have anything else that you want to put on that heat mat, then you can leave them on there. And I keep in mind you got to water more often when they on that. Yeah, they mat. do. They can dry out a lot quicker. Um, I found that out um, this week, so I understand. So in our greenhouse, we keep something on the heat mats at all times. It could be something that's already germinated that's just, just growing. But if I've got something that's already germinated and then I need to germinate something else, I'll take it off and use it. So it just, just depends on your space and what you got yep. there. All right, all right, all right. That's going to do it. For us tonight, I hope everybody enjoyed that show and uh, let us know how you like us having guests on the show. And we want to, if you want to see us incorporate more guests into the future, our current technology setup only allows us to have two people on a microphone at once. That's why we can't have three of us up here. But uh, let us know if you like the guest format and if you got any topics. Uh, or guests that you'd like to see us have on the show, let us know in the comments below. Fredo, I appreciate you being here, buddy. I thank you uh, for the invitation. I really enjoyed uh, the, the conversation. I hope everybody out there enjoyed it as well. If you did enjoy it, give us a big thumbs up. Don't forget to hit that subscribe button. Ring that bell so you get notified every time we come out with a new video. We'll see y'all next time. Mm -hmm.